0: All right, well, this Sunday and next will be our last two for now in the Gospel of John. We've been hanging out in John now since May, and it's been good. I've been enjoying our times every week in the Gospel of John. And this week, what I want to do for on Palm Sunday, it's a bit unusual, but we're not going to be spending time in the Palm Sunday text, the typical text where Jesus comes into Jerusalem Uh, We're going to be spending time in John 19 with special emphasis on the words that Jesus spoke from the cross. Uh, This Sunday is Palm Sunday, of course, when the church has traditionally remembered the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem at the beginning of Holy Week. He came riding into the city on the back of a donkey in fulfillment of prophecy, and the adoring crowds received him with shouts of Hosanna to the Son of David, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. This was it. This was the moment. Jesus, mounted on on the foal of a donkey, was riding into Jerusalem. The crowds were announcing him as the Messiah, and Jesus was not only not correcting them, he was beaming with delight, he was actually encouraging it. He didn't say, hey, let's not get ahead of ourselves. He said, that's right on. That's who I am. You should be saying that. And the crowd was ginned up, whipped into this furor of excitement and anticipation. This is really happening. The great national hope, the thing that they had been raised expecting and looking toward, the son of David is riding into Jerusalem right now on the full of a donkey in fulfillment of prophecy, this is it. Imagine the moment. Try and put yourself in the disciples' shoes. What a day this was going to be. They must have been wild with excitement and anticipation. Their hearts were pounding, their minds racing with all the possibilities. How would he do it? How would he make himself king, they must have wondered. Would he strike the first blow by directing his followers to attack the Romans? Or would he just call down fire from heaven to consume all the enemies of God's people? It just seemed like anything was possible when it came to Jesus. Nobody knew exactly what was coming, but there was an electric excitement in the air. Something big was about to go down. Jesus the great worker of signs and wonders, the great teacher, the one who even raised from the dead Lazarus was coming into Jerusalem. Well, what a difference a few days can make. On the Sunday before being crucified, Jesus entered Jerusalem a hero, the great hope of the people, and on Friday he would leave the city condemned, rejected, and despised. He had entered Jerusalem being carried on the back of a young donkey, but he would exit the city just a few days later under his own power and carrying a cross on his back. On Sunday, they cheered for the fact that Jesus had called Lazarus alive out of a tomb, and on Friday, they cheered as he was killed and placed into one. On Sunday, they had excitedly declared him to be their king. And on Friday, they sought to kill him, and on the basis of what charge? That he said he was their king. Before the week was out, Jesus the Messiah would wear a crown. But in a grotesque, cartoonish fashion, it would be a crown fashioned from that symbol of the fall, thorns. He would be declared publicly as king, but the placard saying so would be hammered into the rough, blood-stained wood of the cross on which he was likewise fastened. The New Testament presents a startling paradox of Jesus proclaiming the kingdom of God throughout his life and then dying a criminal's death on a cross. And these two ideas were just as irreconcilable to the minds of most people at that time as they are inseparable to our minds today. We have the benefit of looking back on this event f- with all the advantages of a New Testament people. We understand the significance and meaning of the cross, but at the time, to the eyes of the people who first witnessed it, these, this was an irreconcilable paradox. He said he's the Messiah, but he's hung up on the cross like a common criminal. It can't be. What we now know, but which was not clear to the people who actually witnessed the crucifixion, is that the kingdom is the ultimate goal of the cross, and the cross is the means by which the kingdom comes. Without the cross, there would be no kingdom. In John's account of the life of Christ, which we've been studying now since last May, everything has been moving toward this climactic hour. That was the, that's the phrase that Jesus liked to use in which John records, the hour. He kept referring, my hour has not yet come. The hour was the hour of his death. This is the hour. When Jesus, being lifted up on the cross, is truly being enthroned in glory. The cross then, and this is Jeremy Treat says this, he says the cross becomes not only the center of redemptive history, but also the fulcrum upon which the logic of the world is turned upside down. Shame is transformed into glory, foolishness into wisdom, and humiliation into exaltation. The cross becomes the throne from which Christ rules the world. So the scene that we witness at the cross is a sort of strange coronation. And like so many kingdoms... The kingdom of heaven was born out of bloodshed and the conquering of an enemy. But unlike those other earthly kingdoms, the blood that was shed was that of the conquering king himself, given in sacrifice to make children out of all of us rebels. And one of the things I find endlessly fascinating about this strange coronation scene This glorious beginning that looked for all the world to the eyes that first witnessed like an ignominious end. The thing I find endlessly fascinating about this strange coronation scene are the sorts of things that our King Jesus said from the cross. Have you ever, I wrote this in the midweek email this week, have you ever in a moment of pain or frustration or anger said something you later regretted? Absolutely, (laughs) I sure have. Have you ever smashed your thumb with a hammer and almost reflexively, a swear word came flying out? Our mastery or lack of mastery over our tongues at such times is very revealing. Uh, When I was growing up, right over the sink in my family's kitchen, there was a quote hanging there by the missionary Amy Carmichael. And like anything you pass by a million times a day, it just got memorized by me at some point. It's mute testimony to the fact that Christian parents, it's worthwhile to hang Bible verses and true things around the house in writing. But this quote from Amy Carmichael was right over the the kitchen sink in the household I grew up in, and it said, A cup of sweet water cannot spill one drop of bitter water, no matter how suddenly jolted. It's very true. You nail Jesus to a cross, and what comes oozing out of the wounds is just goodness, grace, mercy, beautiful things. Jesus himself said it better than the missionary Amy Carmichael. In Luke 6, Jesus says this, For each tree is known by its own fruit. Indeed, people do not gather figs from thorn bushes or grapes from brambles. The good man brings good things out of the good treasure of his heart— And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil treasure of his heart. For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. What a convicting thought that is. What Jesus is saying there is that our mouths are just like a spillway. That your hearts are full of things and they bubble out of our mouths. And when I take inventory of my own mouth, that's a convicting thought. What does it say about what my heart is full of? The kinds of things that comes out. It's a helpful diagnostic tool given to us by Jesus and later elaborated upon by James. You might remember in the book, in the book of James, he speaks more about the tongue than really any other biblical writer. And really, almost, it's almost like the book of James is an extended commentary on this one little thought. It's a helpful diagnostic tool, but it is also, in this moment, on the cross, a helpful way of knowing and understanding the word, the heart of Jesus. The words of Jesus spoken from the cross in those last moments before his death reveal an inner world that is really worth thinking about and celebrating and also imitating. Remember, as followers of Jesus, when we describe ourselves as disciples of Jesus— what is a disciple? Well, it's a sincere from the heart imitator of our Lord's example. And so what he says is something that we should imitate on a heart level. And if we take all the gospel accounts together, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, you just put them all together, they give us, they tell us that Jesus said, at least in so far as the Bible records for us, seven different things from the cross. Matthew and Mark only record one saying of Jesus from the cross, and that's when God, Jesus called out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew and Mark highlight that saying from the cross. Luke records three sayings from the cross, which are not contained in the other uh, three gospels. Luke has Jesus saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then he says to the other thief who was being crucified with him, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. And then lastly, Luke quotes Jesus as saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. John, like Luke, though, records three sayings of Jesus from the cross that none of the other gospel writers record. And of course, these three different, four different accounts are not in conflict with one another. Together, they provide the fullness of the picture. They're just highlighting different things. And so John highlights three things that Jesus said from the cross, and that's where we want to spend some time this morning. The first uh, was what Elaine just read in verses 26 through 27. The scene is this. Jesus is hanging on the cross, and imagine with me the heart-rending picture of his mom watching this. I mean, just unbelievably brutal. You remember all the way back when... Uh, Mary went to the temple with uh, the baby uh, to dedicate him, essentially, and there uh, he met, she met a man who gave a prophecy saying that your soul will be pierced also. Uh, it's gonna hurt to be Jesus' mom. And this is the moment when that prophecy becomes real. She's standing there watching her son, who she held and loved and nurtured and took care of, Treated so unbelievably rough. It must have been just uh, very painful to witness. And this is the scene. Jesus from the cross looks down at his mom. And in a wonderful display of friendship, John is there. And he's not looking away. And Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby. And he said to his mother, I believe with a head nod towards John, an unwritten bit of communication, but I believe he indicated John and said to his mother, Woman, behold your son, And then I I believe he said that, did that, because in the next line he's speaking to John and the parallel nature of these two statements indicate to me that he was talking about those two in relationship to each other. So he's saying to his mom, look at John, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. Uh, I've spoken about this exchange on previous Sundays. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but I do think it's so significant to this moment. To put these words that Jesus spoke from the cross in their proper perspective, let me quote another familiar passage from the book of 1 Peter. In 1 Peter 2, it says this speaking about you, the church, God's people, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see, when we think about the cross as sort of a strange coronation scene, the moment at which the kingdom is born, This is also the birth of a brand new people. Once you were not a people, but now you are. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have. You are a separate and distinct people from among the peoples of the earth. And this is a strange sort of kingdom that Christians belong to. Jesus doesn't claim to be Lord and King over part of the earth, but over all of it. And so there is no fixed geographic borders to the kingdom that the Lord has declared. His lordship extends over all the world. And although we are sprinkled here and there throughout the nations of the earth, we remain a unique and distinct people within the peoples. The American church should understand itself as a people within a people. That's what we are. And with these words spoken from the cross, Jesus illustrates for us in a powerful and also a very poignant way how important is the community of the church to a believer. In this moment, even as Mary was feeling concerned and distressed for Jesus, no doubt, it is evident that even through the pain and the humiliation of the cross that Jesus was concerned about her also. However, the reason why I feel these words spoken from the cross are such a clear statement about the holy nation that was being established at this very moment at the cross is because the tie that bound Mary and John together was not born of blood, but of the Spirit. Looking at this from one angle, it is really a puzzling exchange. Uh, I have uh, three brothers— and a sister besides. And I just imagine if one of my brothers was being crucified, and I was there witnessing this awful thing, and my brother looked down from the cross and said to my mother, Woman, behold your son. And he directed her attention to a a man that was not one of her sons. Somebody who was not blood-related. And hey, there's a bunch of us right here. Are who are actually her sons. And then he says to that man who was not one of her natural sons, this is your mother. I mean, this is really a scandalous moment if you think about it from a certain angle as far as the family politics involved. It's a strange thing. According to Matthew 13, Mark 6, and other passages, Mary, uh, Mark 3 being another one, Mary had a number of other children, including four other sons besides Jesus. John, the beloved disciple, is in no way a relative. And so this would have landed as very strange in that culture and maybe even offensive to her other sons. It's their responsibility as her sons to provide care for him, for her. And it's not as if Jesus, up till this moment, had been providing a place for Mary to stay. In Matthew 8, it says, Foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus was essentially homeless. And until a couple of years ago, I always thought of this exchange as kind of a last-minute housekeeping item. As though from the cross, Jesus is making arrangements for Mary's housing and support going forward after he is gone because he had been doing that. But that seems unlikely because it doesn't appear that he had been providing those things for Mary before his death. But again, more than just strange, it may have been even offensive to Mary's other sons. In fact, it's likely that at the time of the crucifixion, Mary probably made her home with her other sons, and passages that we find in Matthew 13, Mark 3 and 6, make, give us the clear impression that Mary was living with them in Nazareth altogether. I think that when Jesus says to Mary, Look on John as your son, and to John, look on Mary as your mother. He is showing us how our needs are to be met in the church. Paul said in Acts 20.28 that Christ purchased the church of God with his own blood. And therefore, one of the things that Jesus our King is declaring from his throne, the cross, is that this is the birth of a new people and that those things which those ties which bind God's people together are eternal they are more permanent and indissoluble and yes also significant than the blood ties of family relationships there is a primacy to the church even over our families and he is giving to us from the cross the church a loving, caring, sustaining, encouraging family beyond family. And in all of this, I don't want to send the false signal that Jesus was somehow cheapening family relationships. Not so at all. He is attempting to elevate in our thinking the place that the church should hold in our lives and in our thinking and in our hearts as a primary community into which we should be invested at the cross, the kingdom was born, and so too was a unique people. And we see this in this first word that he has from the cross, as recorded in the Gospel of John. The second thing that Jesus says from the cross is this I thirst. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And we have to pause here for a second and think about what does it mean for the one who said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. What does it mean that that man who extended that invitation now cries out from the cross, I thirst? Or what about John 4.14, where Jesus says to the Samaritan woman at the well, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give give him will never be thirsty again. How can a thirsty man satisfy our thirst? You know, I, uh, it's just one of those rules. I can't give to you what I don't have. And a thirsty man cannot satisfy your thirst. Isn't that true? However, Uh, That would be a false understanding of what's happening here at the cross. Surely this thirst of Jesus on the cross is evidence of great bodily torment. Uh, That's something we can note here for sure. The excruciating ordeal of crucifixion had the bodily effect of making him very, very thirsty. So in this, we see the humility and the humanity of Jesus who associated with us in all of our creaturely needs. But there is also something deeper and spiritually significant about this moment. On the cross, Jesus not only provided for us the living water he had promised, but he also took on to himself our thirst. It was a trade. It was an incredible transaction that took place at the cross. He satisfied the deep thirst of human souls while simultaneously taking on to himself a thirsty anguish of soul. He not only provided us with what we lacked, but justice required that he himself emptied himself and became nothing. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." This thirsting of Jesus is one of the many things that testify to the prophecy concerning Jesus that we find in Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. In this moment, the deep longing thirst of the human soul was satisfied in a God who took that thirstiness onto himself and satisfied ours perfectly. This is certainly a picture of what's happening here. The last thing that John says, John records Jesus as saying from the cross, is found in verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. At some point in the afternoon, after suffering in agony for the better part of the day, Jesus says in a hoarse voice that he was thirsty. He has drained the cup of the Father's wrath. He has borne our full curse. There is no debt left to pay, and he has nothing left to give. The the wine moistens his mouth just enough to say one final phrase It is finished. And with that, Jesus dies. What is finished? (laughs) That's the question. What is finished? Clearly, his agony and torment. Finally, it's over. That's present, I think, in what he's saying. But I believe this is far more than that. I think he is saying a whole great many things here in one beautiful phrase with great economy of language. The Old Testament prophecies had all been fulfilled. Everything written about me is fulfilled, it's done, it's finished. The obedience and humiliation of Jesus were now completed. But most importantly, what Jesus meant when he said it is finished is that all that was needed to satisfy the justice and the wrath of God had been accomplished. Jesus said it is finished, not I've done my part, now you do yours. He said it's done. The Christian hope is not that we might earn from God something but that it is finished. And this is a very important thing for us to know and understand about what Jesus accomplished at the cross. And I'm aware as I'm saying this that many of you have been sitting in a pew as a thoughtful Christian for a great many years. And I may be repeating a truth that you have heard literally thousands of times. And I don't like to be pedantic or repetitious or bore you. But this is such a key and important truth that it bears repeating, and that really still thrills me to hear it. That as a Christian, what is needed is not for you to become a better person. You cannot, through works, satisfy the righteous demands of God. When we come before the throne of judgment, God will not say, you were basically good, so I'm going to let you in. (laughs) That's not how it's going to work. The Bible says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and that the wages of sin is death. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sinning is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christians are not a people who believe themselves better than others. We are full of a humble awareness that we do not deserve what has been given to us. It's a gift. I am not a Christian because I'm one of the good ones. I am a Christian because Jesus was perfect and because it's finished I have no resume of good works by which I can draw before the throne of God and say, see, I deserve entry into your grace. I've earned it. When I draw, I mean, what Paul said in Galatians 6 is may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only thing I can lean on. It's the only thing I can, I can bring before God and say this, this is why I have standing. This is why I should be shown grace, because I've put my trust and my faith in the perfect one, not in the idea that I'm good. Uh, this is a, a, a thought that is common to human beings all over the world, and it's really, I think, the defining difference of Christianity from other religions. I talked a bit about that last Sunday. Uh, is this just this idea of grace. And the it is finished is just three of the most beautiful words for somebody who finally comes to a place of understanding what that means. That the only thing I bring to God when I become a Christian is my need. That's it. And I lay my whole weight on this idea of it being finished, that Jesus's finished work on the cross is sufficient. So those are the three words that are spoken from the cross. We see his declaration of a new people. We see his association with us as he took on the full wrath and curse, which by rights should have been poured out on us. And in the end, we see that that is not the beginning of our journey towards God. It is the accomplishment of it. We are saved because it is finished. And there is no more work for us to do as far as earning from God anything. It's satisfied. So those are the three words spoken from the cross. And then he died. And that's where we leave it for now. (laughs) He died and went into the grave. It's dark, it's miserable. And uh, then came resurrection sunday and that's where we're going to pick it up next we're going to finish up our story through the gospel of john i'm so grateful that the story of jesus does not end right there there'd be enough to celebrate in it i suppose but if this is where it ended uh, it would not be a very hopeful story because in the death of resurrection we see the death of our old self but in the resurrection of jesus we see the resurrection of our new self and that is the fullness of what it is to of the fullness of the christian hope And so this is half of it. (laughs) So come back next week on Easter Resurrection Sunday. We'll be talking about the resurrection of Jesus and all that that means for us as believers. Uh, Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I think of Mary and John standing there by the cross, uh, just confused, hurting, but not walking away, God, looking, uh, staring with both eyes into the ugliness of it all. And Father, you have shown us that apart from Christ, we have nothing to commend ourselves to you. The sinful details of our lives, God, are ugly to look at. But God, when we look at the cross we see a clear evidence that you are not just a righteous God. You are that, but you are not just that. You are also a God of great love, grace, and mercy. And God, in order to remain perfect in your attributes, perfectly who you are, without compromising any part of yourself, the cross was necessary. And Father, we know as in this moment that we are a special people. Not special in the sense that we are special, but special in the sense that we are set apart and unique. God, we know that there is nothing particularly wonderful about us, but that we are in relationship with a wonderful God. That's the wonderful thing about the church. And Father, I just pray, Lord, as we go out from here, that we would... Make real Jesus' wishes for us that were expressed in the high priestly prayer that we studied a few weeks ago. God, I pray that you would be glorified in us. God, I pray, Lord, that you would give us a, a high heart for your glory, a desire, Lord, for your people, for the great cause. Father, it is true that there's nothing we can do to earn our salvation, but that doesn't mean there is nothing to do in response to what you've done in our lives. Father, I pray that we would go out from here eager to share the good news with people that it is finished. That Jesus has done for us a wonderful thing, a glorious thing, Father, I pray that you would stir us up to evangelistic concern. God, I pray that you would give us a continuing and agonizing heart for the lost. God, I pray that we would be moved to prayer this week, that we would be moved in many different ways to share the good news of salvation. Father, I thank you for this church. I thank you for my brothers and sisters. And God, I pray that you would continue to shape us into a tool that is more fit for your use in these days and in this place while we wait for the return of Jesus. And may that day come soon. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.